This podcast has been made possible by Planful and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Raj Agarwal, CFO and Executive Vice President of Western Union, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 536. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Brian Swartz, CFO of Cornerstone On Demand. Since Brian arrived inside the CFO office at Cornerstone roughly three years ago, the software developer's services business has shifted from serving customers with its own internal resources to collaborating with a vast partner network. It's a transformation that kept Brian and his finance team on high alert as milestones were met and new ones were added to the mix. We asked Brian about the big shift and how finance has helped the organization find its way. We begin after this. In an ever-changing world, it can be tough to keep up with the latest FP&A trends and innovations that keep you ahead of the game. Luckily, there's a podcast for that. Tune in to Being Planful, the podcast for finance leaders and planning experts, and stay in the know about what's happening in planning and forecasting. Guests like influencer Chris Ortega, Boston Red Sox CFO Tim Zhu, and Brian Lapidus of AFP will keep you up to speed on how you can put finance in the driver's seat this year. Find the full episodes at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. P.S. Think you might make a great guest on the show? Shoot host Rowan Tonkin an email at beingplanful at planful.com. human capital management people. We know them. Brian, welcome. Hi, Jack. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yes. Thank you for uh, making time for us here. As always, uh, Brian, we like to begin by asking our CFO guests to look back for us. This is not your first CFO tour of duty. In fact, you've had several. So we were looking forward to talking to you today. But what are those experiences as you look back that you feel prepared you best for a CFO role? What comes to mind? Well, I think it's a great question, Jack, and I've been very fortunate. I've had a, I don't know, I guess I've been in the business 
world for about 25 years now, and uh, kind of I've been in several different industries and seen lots of different business models. Probably, you know, as I think back, uh, early in my career, I spent about a little less than 10 years in public accounting uh, for, at the time, one of the big five public accounting firms, uh, which I really, really enjoyed that environment. Uh, I loved uh, the people I worked with. They were super bright, super motivated. Uh, super focused, and uh, I was fortunate enough uh, to, you know, just, you know, kind of escalate uh, through the ranks pretty quickly. Uh, I think I had some mentors in the firm that were terrific and kind of got promoted to a, a manager level within three years that usually is a five- to seven-year process, and, and that presented, quite frankly, all kinds of, you know, opportunities, but also challenges that I really had to overcome, uh, you know, namely, when you get promoted that fast, you end up managing people that are a little more senior than you. You end up having to interface with clients that are more senior than you. And yeah, I had to figure out really how to relate to them and what I needed to do differently in my kind of personal slash professional life to, to, you know, to thrive in that environment. And fortunately, it all worked out really well, and I enjoyed it, and it was terrific. But it was one of those, I think, uh, milestones, at least in my career, with hindsight that I, I look back and I, I think went very, very well. So that's kind of number one. That was very early in my career. And then I think later on in my career, when I left public accounting, I actually went to work for an industrial manufacturing company called Eagle Pitcher, which I actually don't think is around anymore, but it was basically a mini conglomerate that had lots of different industrial-related businesses from automotive supply businesses where we sold uh, parts to the OEMs, the big three uh, auto manufacturers, uh, to a mining business, to a chemical business, to a battery, digital lithium-ion battery business. And it was just a very kind of an old... Uh, a very old um, um, industrial manufacturing company. Anyways, to make a long story short, the businesses were all very different, all very interesting. It was also owned privately by private equity and uh, had, we had a lot of debt on the balance sheet. Actually, we ended up taking it through a restructuring. So I actually was the controller at the time and when they filed bankruptcy, or the CFO and the treasurer at the time left, so I kind of stuck around. Uh, it was a little bit like the acting CFO, but really had the opportunity over 15 months to uh, take a company through a bankruptcy. And one thing I learned is I never wanted to do that again, but I also, you know, as a young, relatively young finance professional, you, you really learn to understand in that type of environment uh, all the reasons why we have contracts and what all the provisions in the contracts mean, because the reality is it's really not relevant unless things don't go as planned, and that's basically what a Chapter 11 is. So anyways, about 18 months later, we got the company out of bankruptcy, and uh, it was a terrific, ter just a terrific experience, and I think really helped set me up to think about things differently uh, as I, a few years later, went on to become the, the CFO at a Apollo Education Group, which uh, is private today, was public then. Uh, they're, the, uh, they're in the private sector higher education business. They own basically the University of Phoenix uh, domestically and then at the time lots of schools internationally as well, all in degree granting higher education. And it was a very mission-oriented business. I joined them after the, the manufacturing kind of stint. And I was there for quite some time from about 06 until 2015 or so. And it was a terrific environment and, as I said, very, very mission-oriented. Um, and I think the, probably one of the milestones of my career that, that I think back on is just a key event was leaving actually Apollo Group, which uh, I did in 2015 to move on to e-commerce and software, which I know we're going to talk a little bit more about here, but it definitely that was a very important milestone in my career because it was a very hard decision. I mean, the business was under a lot of stress at the time, but it had really good people and it was a very mission-oriented business that was very focused on helping working adults educate themselves and improve their lives. So that was a, a pretty significant milestone as well. So yes, your arrival at 
the cornerstone. Tell us about that and what was the opportunity that you saw that attracted you there? Yeah, so as I said, when I left Apollo Group, uh, our Apollo Education Group, I moved to Seattle to join Zulily, which is an e-commerce company. I was only there for a year because we ended up selling the company. And then an opportunity with Cornerstone came up uh, in Los Angeles, which I'm now at and been here now for just over three years. And it's it's been a ton of fun. It's a totally different business. It's a, we're a, um, a, one of the original SaaS software companies. Um, basically, we've been around for about 20 years. We're founder-run. Um, we're about a $600 million business next year, kind of uh, ballpark. Uh, we're, so we're a very scaled business. And, and as I mentioned, we were started 20 years ago uh, in 1999 uh, as a SaaS company uh, before the word SaaS even existed. And basically what we did originally was we basically helped companies deliver learning to their employees. And that has evolved quite a bit, as you would imagine, in the last 20 years. And today, we are really the, the really the only standalone leading talent management, talent experience uh, company. So we do all things related to people inside of enterprises, from helping uh, companies identify people, doing recruiting, to onboarding, to once they're in their various companies or their organizations or enterprises, how they uh, uh, administer and take learning, absorb learning, how you do compensation, succession planning, all the things HR, human resource related, other than the transaction side of HR. So we don't do payroll processing or uh, benefits administration. We do all the things that are very strategic around uh, recruiting, identifying, growing, and retaining your, your what in most cases companies would say are their most important assets, their people. So uh, it's a terrific business, a lot of fun. Uh, as I said, we're about $600 million. We have about 40 million users on the platform. We have about 3,600 clients. We're a very global business. More than a third of our revenue is international, and we have offices all over the world, over 20 offices globally. So it's a lot of fun. We actually just recently opened our new Salt Lake City office, too, and we're in the process of hiring quite a few people there, including lots of uh, finance talent and accounting talent. So if there's anybody out there interested, please take a look at our website, and uh, we'd love to have you join the team. So, you know, I'm thinking, uh, what, a, what a wonderful chapter for you. You arrived. This is a, really a a SaaS pioneer, uh, as you mentioned, it, it didn't have the burden of having a legacy on-premise business. It built the model from the ground up, and at the same time, uh, its offerings address uh, some of the talent challenges that so many companies are struggling with today. So it's in this space that uh, is getting a lot of attention from finance as well as hiring costs and managing, uh, you know, talent retention. Uh, is so top of mind. So my big question for you is, how are you going to make this role yours? What is, you know, going to be your thumbprint here uh, going forward? What are you trying to achieve for, for Cornerstone? Yeah, so it's interesting. When you look at my background and you look at our of the nature of our industry. I mean, I had very, I had, I had much more of a B2C background than a B2B background. I had basically no direct software experience except really in my career as a, as a uh, in public accounting. And so I think when I when I started meeting with the team here, when I met with our founder, our CEO, Adam Miller, um, really what I think they, what the company was looking for and what really attracted me was they wanted someone that had come from much larger enterprises. The company had grown from, you know, Cornerstone back in 2007 to $10 million in revenue, give or take. And in a matter of, you know, less than 10 years, five years, it had, you know, more than 10x that number, 
nearly 10x that number. So they, there was an enormous amount of scale very quickly. We were in an environment where we're, we were, and we still are, a growth company, but there was this balance between how do you optimize the business and how do you think about that at scale. So as we approach a billion dollars in revenue, you know, how do we think about managing the business for scale? And I brought, obviously, a lot of that experience given the platforms I had been in before. And so that was a huge kind of attraction for me, you know, helping the company do something I had already done. So I felt pretty confident in my ability to do that and help them scale and, and not just scale the finance operation in terms of providing more, you know, information for decision making, but also just the other parts of the business, right? Whether it was operations, whether it was sales, marketing, whatever it might be, how do we think about that? So that was one part of it. And then the other part that really attracted me here is at our core, we are a learning company. In fact, our tagline is realize your potential, which is exactly what it is. We are very focused, not just internally with our employees culturally, but also with our clients, enabling our clients to help all of their employees realize their potential. So, you know, the, the workforce is going through lots of changes. I think as of next year, 20% of the workforce will be uh, Gen Zers, uh, and there's a different expectation around career management, career development, but helping being part of an organization that is very kind of mission-oriented uh, in terms of helping people help themselves and opening opportunities for them. It's a little bit of that mission and culture that I mentioned at Apollo Education Group. We, we certainly have that at, at Cornerstone, and it's a super exciting place to, to work as a result. What about your team? Has the skills mix on your team changed over the past three years? And did you find it necessary to reorganize in some way? Yeah, we've made some changes. I mean, in the last six, nine months even, I've brought in a couple of senior leaders that have done a, just a terrific job throughout the business uh, to really, again, think about scale, think about the business differently. You know, I think when you, whenever you start a new opportunity as a CFO, and I've done this, I guess, three times now in my career, um, you know, it's really about allocating, um, you know, how you think about where you're spending your time, building the right relationships in the organization, and then your team, right? And, and is your team uh, the best team to make you look good and to take you into the future, whatever that future might look like in whatever company you're at. So, you know, we've certainly made some changes. We've upskilled in certain areas. Not, again, not just in finance, but in the broad organization. Probably uh, half of my direct peers in the last 12 to 18 months are new. Uh, the business itself has gone through a pretty significant business shift in the last 18 months where we've uh, began or have effectively transitioned our services business uh, from what we used to do internally to our partner network, which has created, you know, quite a bit of change and actually simplified our business in many, many ways, but obviously uh, as part of any type of business model shift, uh, created quite a bit of, um, you know, confusion and change uh, management that needs to happen internally in terms of roles and responsibilities. So I think all of those things are where I spend a lot of my time and specifically around relationship building and making sure we have the right team in all parts of the company is a, is a huge part of that. What about, uh, is there a, your FP&A group, how, uh, how has that changed during your tenure? No, they haven't changed a whole lot. I mean, what they do has changed a lot. The team itself has not changed a lot. We have a terrific FP&A team. Uh, it's relatively small. It's relatively nimble. I think when I got here, they, their mandate, so to speak, or their their swim lane was really to do a very top-down budget process for the company and then do quarterly forecasts, kind of what was what is table stakes for a, a public company. And what we've really tried to do with the team is evolve it quite a bit to make it a little bit more uh, even more business partnering focused. We have new executives that have come in. They're at various levels of the company. They have a desire for more information for better decision making. So we've been, we've, the FP&A team has really pivoted to work more in a business partnering sense with some of those leaders and really help kind of up level their ability to provide information, influence decisions, and ultimately provide information for, for better
heartbreaking, but the team itself was terrific. Uh, they're all, they all, they all of them really understand the nuances of the business, and they uh, they get quite a bit of work done, which is terrific. Now, I have to believe you're you're looking at uh, recurring revenues regularly, customer retention, lifetime customer value. Are these all part of your world? Yeah, I mean, listen, we're a recurring revenue software business, as you, as you mentioned, Jack, and, you know, the metrics are pretty clear. It's probably the most important metric is around renewal rates and retention, uh, you know, how many clients or how many dollars of uh, contractual annual revenue are retaining. Obviously, we're looking at new sales. Client experience is super important as a non-finance person. A lot of people forget that, but, you know, net promoter scores, NPS scores, or CSAT scores are super important. And what's interesting, we've started to grow our business in the area of content, where historically, you know, we would sell our platform to an enterprise uh, to help administer the learning inside of their organization. And so our client at the end of the day was the enterprise. The clients are still our enterprise, but because we're now delivering content through our platform directly to clients, the actual end user experience is becoming just as important as the client experience. And so focusing on utilization trends and user uh, satisfaction in addition to just client satisfaction is super important for us. And tell us about how you're making those numbers visible throughout the organization. Has that changed in terms of how you report them internally? Um, And um, I'm wondering whether uh, sort of a cadence when it comes to meetings. Have you taken a different approach there for whatever reason? Um, Or does it resemble much the same as you operated in your earlier uh, CFO tours of duty? Yeah, so I think we've, we've made a lot of progress in that regard. In the last 18 months in particular, uh, with our business shift, um, uh, you know, kind of pivoting the business to focus on product and not service, we actually we, we had a very focused effort to get the, the organization from the individual sales rep out in the field all the way up to our senior leaders really focused on annual recurring revenue or what's called ARR. It's the, basically the annualized contract value of our products that we sell to our clients. And as part of that, we really started to leverage. We use Salesforce like a lot of companies, uh, but Salesforce Einstein dashboards, which we have an enormous number now, and it's it's uh, it's actually pushed down all the way to our individual reps level, and it really gives us just enhanced visibility into the, the performance, not just of the sales team, but of the support teams, the client satisfaction teams, and we're really leveraging the, the Einstein product on the Salesforce platform as really our, not, not so much kind of our BI tool, right, our visualization tool to be able to look at data from different sources and have real-time data to make uh, better decisions. So we dramatically up-leveled that. We've also, as you can imagine, you know, when I joined the company, we were about $350 million in revenue. This next year we'll get close to $600 million, or that will end this year with ARR of, of close to $600 million. You know, the, as you scale a business and double a business in a three- or four-year period at that size and scale, uh, you do need to think about doing things differently. You need to, do need to think about cadence of meetings, levels of communication, cascading of communications uh, to make sure you have alignment and, uh, you know, just support of all the managers through the whole organization. And I think that will only exacerbate itself over the course of the next few years, and we have to be very mindful. We, we like to be super nimble. We want to obviously attack issues and deal with them quickly, but you also have to make sure you're bringing people along, particularly in a business with, you know, 2,000-plus employees globally. When you make this transition, as you've been describing it, to product uh, sort of away from services, the emphasis, is there a, a particular metric that uh, you've used to educate the board differently, or is it the same, same set of metrics? 
So it's interesting, just to give it, let me explain the pivot a little bit just for all the listeners' perspective. So traditionally, SaaS companies, if you were a SaaS company starting today, you as a SaaS company would focus on building product, right? Writing code to build a product that's probably in the cloud, that's certainly delivered in a hosted environment to your clients. And then you, there are lots of consulting firms out there uh, that have really kind of evolved over the course of the last 10 or 15 years. Uh, and there's big SIs like the Deloitte's of the world and DXC's of the world and the lights of the world. There's lots of very, very large uh, systems integrators. But then there's a lot of boutique firms that are set up to help help clients or companies, enterprises, uh, stand up their SaaS solution. So they come in and they do configuration and they might do integration work and project management work and change management work, those types of things, lots of consulting services. So prior to last year, we basically had a policy with our clients that all of those services had to be papered or contracted with us directly along with buying the products. And uh, we had always had that philosophy or that, that business model because 20 years ago when we started, uh, there, wasn't, there weren't any smaller boutique consulting firms to do that for a startup SaaS company, which wasn't called SaaS at the time. And it just became part of our business, and we never really pivoted to allow our partners to, to sell those services into our clients. So what we decided to do 18 months ago is that, that at the time, that was about a $100 million business for us, a little less than that, and we were about a $400 million company or so. It was about 20%, a little bit more than that, of our revenue. So if we were doing $400 million in revenue, about 20% of that was services effectively. And our services was, grow, was growing faster for various reasons than even our, our software, our recurring revenue business was. Um, and so what we decided to do was allow our partners to basically go to market with us. And when we go into a client today, we go in, we sell the product, our partner is with us, uh, either they bring us in or we bring them in to basically sell the services to help that client uh, get, you know, become live. And if they're a live client, how do they do continuous optimization of the platform? So that's our current business model today. It's been in place for about 18 months. That's why if you look at our just our revenue numbers over the course of the last uh, four to six quarters, you know, our revenue, our total revenue is growing in mid-single digits, but our underlying software is actually growing in high uh, double-digit or high, high, high teens um, because our services revenue is obviously phasing down from what was about $80 million to what we expect will be between about $25 million annually. So big picture, that's what's happening with our business. Um, and then in terms of, you know, that simplified a lot of things in the business because I, I really am a, pri I am a believer having been relatively new to this business, but joining it, you know, a few years ago, the companies, there, there aren't too many companies that can do services really well and build world-class software products, and focusing on one or the other makes sense. Like, that's what most, most companies are either a services or a consulting model, management consulting, public accounting, even lawyers, and the other type of businesses, you build products. And I think focusing on one of those and doing it well allows you to be more successful. So that's effectively what we're doing today. We are super focused, to answer your question, Jack, in terms of metrics, growing ARR. So ARR is a very common SaaS metric. It's annual recurring revenue. Previously, we were, we were cognizant of ARR when we sold services, but we were also focused on the services part of the business, which is not ARR. And so that just that created, basically went from an, a metric internally that included services around measurement of sales and performance, to now we are just exclusively focused on growing ARR. So that's really the metric we, we dialogue with the board about. It's also the metric we talk externally about, which makes a lot of sense with our investors. Uh, and it's what we're, we're focused on growing over time. All right, and uh, you know, from what I understand, what your this transition is doing, you're really building channel programs out, which help you partner with these different consulting organizations throughout the country, throughout the world. I imagine 
Um, am I a, a correct? And I'm wondering, as the finance leader, what's your involvement there? Are you helping? Uh, I imagine there is involvement, clearly. These channel programs, you have to build in the incentives to uh, come up with the sort of the economic relationship that you have with these partners and make it work correctly without them uh, feeling like you don't have enough skin in the game and vice versa. Uh, I'm oversimplifying, but am I correct? Yeah, so you are, maybe just to try to answer that question, it's a good question, Jack. I mean, I think, so So we do have an alliances team. Uh, alliances team is responsible for building relationships with either large system integrators, SIs, or local boutique consulting firms that can deliver our products in their various geos and markets and feeders around the world. And so what's a little bit different than maybe what you're saying is that we don't, we, we view them as real partners in the go-to-market strategy. So generally speaking, for the vast majority of the time, we actually don't exchange economics with them directly. But what we do is we either have an opportunity for a client that wants one of our products, uh, we will bring in one of our partners to sell their services to make that product uh, go live with the client, for lack of a better reason, or or it could happen the other way where one of our you know client, our partners uh, has a client that wants to buy an incremental product or a new product from us, a new client, they will bring us in during some sort of RFP or bake-off with that client. So generally speaking, it's just a joint go-to-market effort as opposed to where economics were shifted. They're not, gen for the most part, they're not generally reselling our software. We sell our software direct. They sell the services. We sell the software. And together, collectively, we, we you know, try to exceed the client's expectations every day. Okay. Well, we're going to uh, jump to uh, what we like to think of as our signature question, where we ask you to supply us with that finance strategic moment. You've had many of these during the course of your career, no question. Um, you can share uh, a moment that was at uh, Cornerstone On Demand or perhaps earlier in your career. But again, this is where your lines of sight in the organization allowed you to see a risk or an opportunity uh, and you responded to it or the team responded to it or the organization. What comes to mind when we ask for a finance strategic moment? Well, uh, it's, uh, so it's ironic we were talking about our, ser our services transition. I'll, I'll let others be the judges whether or not how strategic this was. But I will never forget my first week with Cornerstone. Um, we had a uh, we had our big client conference that particular week. That's actually why I started at that time uh, to attend the client conference. And at the end of the conference, we had a, a small manager meeting at the end of that week with about half a dozen people or so at the time. And I remember saying the first thing I said um, at um, uh, at that meeting, uh, not knowing anything about software, recurring revenue, or what we really did, was why are we in the services business? And it, again, I don't know how unique it was, because I, I know others had asked that question, um, including members that had been here a long time. But, you know, as you fast forward the business three years from that point, it became very clear that uh, because of lots of dynamics in that services business and our product business, that it, it did make a lot of sense to transition it. I think we've come through that now. 18 months uh, post-announcement uh, super well. I could not be more proud of the team. Uh, but it's been probably the biggest business shift that the company has experienced, you know, since its inception 20 years ago. So I wouldn't say I was responsible for making it happen because I would be taking way too much credit. Uh, but it was a it was my first observation, kind of the first day on the job, that ultimately has come to fruition here, you know, three-plus years later. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, 
you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're going to jump to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to inspire and mentor future finance leaders. Brian, what is it that's exciting you today about finance and business? And again, you know, what, what, what excited you 10 years ago might be different. What is it today that, that you're looking at and you're saying, wow, this is, this is an interesting place and time to be here? Yeah, I mean, listen, I've always enjoyed finance for different reasons. I think whether you're in finance, marketing, HR, product, sales, it doesn't or any other function, technology, or any industry you're in, I think what's most unique about the opportunities of today, particularly for the younger generation, people right out of school, uh, is this, this, this need to have a desire to learn. And, you know, you go back 50 or 60 years and you could start in a career in the 1950s and basically work your way up, even with the same company. But your, your skill set or your swim lane of what you needed to do when you were 25 versus 45 or 55 in that career evolved but didn't change a whole lot. And I think today, and you've seen this the last five years, it's nothing unique, but I think it's happening at an accelerating rate, is everyone needs to be in this world where they have an appetite for learning. And quite frankly, it's one of the reasons why Cornerstone is a great place because that's our mission and that's what we're really focused on. But that, that having a desire, having the ability to get online and Google something and have an answer that's 99.9% accurate and being able to constantly learn and evolve yourself is what's really special and really, quite frankly, required to be successful in today's world. Uh, if you don't have that desire, if you don't have that motivation or need to kind of challenge yourself continuously, whether you're someone who later in their career like me or someone just out of a school, um, you know, it's hard to be successful. And it's not nearly as rewarding than just coming in and doing the same thing day after day or month after month or quarter after quarter. So I think it's uh, super exciting. Hopefully everyone, no matter what your uh, domain expertise is, is excited about doing that. And if you're not, you should find a way to get excited about doing it because I think it really is a prerequisite to be successful in, in any career. This is too good an opportunity in light of uh, Cornerstone's offerings in the talent space and uh, the opportunity to serve you a question regarding the talent challenge that so many companies face. What would you tell finance leaders out there? What should be their priorities for the big talent picture in their company? And forgive me, I'm putting you on the spot here. <laughs> but but uh, it, it seems to me many of them draw a blank here, and they shouldn't be. What would you tell us? So it's interesting. It's a great question, and it's one of the – I mean, if you ask 100 CEOs, regardless of size of company, startup all the way through, you know, the largest company in the world, you would be hard-pressed not to get one of their top five, top ten for sure, and for many of them, it would probably be their single most biggest concern is, is making sure they have the right talent. Uh, and they all define that differently, but it's basically the right people and the right roles at the right time, effectively, in any organization or enterprise. And so, so I think there's a balancing act here where, and I've had, it's interesting in my career, I think about the, um, 
the opportunity to be in obviously several different enterprises, large, small, legacy, old school, or old, old uh, style type companies, and very new and emerging companies that are, you know, basically not, not effectively startups, but feel like startups. And so I think the balancing act, particularly, and it depends where the company is and their scale, if you're a startup company with, you know, 10 or 20 employees, you basically want a bunch of people that are very motivated, hard, motivated, hardworking, adaptable, and just have a desire to learn lots of different things because you want to move them around to solve different problems. And I think as you scale in any enterprise, and you can define that differently at different points, you need to ask yourself, where do you need to have uh, experience over desire just to learn everything and do more? And I think that's a balancing act. I think that's a true art versus a science. Uh, but I think every organization needs to ask themselves for different functions, which functions require experience. Uh, and kind of a subject matter expertise in that particular area or swim lane, and which areas do we, where, where do we want to balance that with having the right people at different points in their career that are just highly motivated to do very different things. And so, you know, Cornerstone has been phenomenal in the last 20 years of retaining uh, a lot of people that have been here for 10 plus years and moving people around, uh, starting with our CEO, he's super, you know, super uh, um, skilled at doing this, moving people into different functions that are just high performers, and many of them, virtually all of them, uh, succeed in those functions. But you get to a point in certain functions where you do need to hire more for experience versus uh, just desire to do more and learn something new, because you get to a size and a scale of a business where you, you need that experience to be successful. And so, again, I think it's, a, it's an art, not a science, but I think every single member of the executive team, whether you're the CFO, the head of HR, head of sales, head of product, head of marketing, uh, all the way up to obviously the CEO uh, who owns that in every organization needs to have a voice in the room on that and have a perspective on which parts of the company require those kind of different personas at different you know, points of time during the, the life cycle of the company. We'd like to ask this question, We again, to have you look back and, and think about the first time you stepped into that CFO role for the first time. And, again, this would go back to several earlier uh, tours of duty for you. Uh, what is that piece of information you wish someone had given you? What would you give yourself, and what piece of information would you give yourself today if you could step into that room and whisper in your own ear? What would it have been? What is it? Well, I think I've had a very fortunate career, and I'm super um, um, uh, um, grateful for that. I think, you know, I've been very focused and laser-focused in my career, being successful, moving up, evolving, and I think um, probably from my – uh, wife who's taught me over the last 10 years, you, you really need to enjoy, you know, appreciate the journey, not just the destination or not to stay so focused on the destination and just be even more present uh, day in and day out. And it's not that I would have done anything differently had I done that, but I think with hindsight, you'd have more memories and points of memory along the way that would uh, even make it that much more rewarding today. So that's, that's probably the best advice I ever give myself at 20 years old if I could go back, you know, 25 years or so. Be part of the part of the minute from be there, be there. Do, do you have a personal habit or routine that you believe has in some way contributed to your professional success? Yeah, even though some would probably doubt me on this one, I do think balance is probably the most important thing uh, for anyone to be successful. It doesn't matter how intense you are, your job, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're you know, anyone else in any other role. But, you know, how I, I define that as someone who's got the right balance between professional family, friends, activity, those types of things, and making sure you're balancing all that in the right way. You can't you can't go 100 miles an hour of work uh, forever, and that be the only thing that provides anyone with um, 
the right level of happiness to be successful at that over the long term. So I think having that right balance, spending time with friends, family, like I said, having some sort of activity. I'm a big cyclist and used to be an endurance athlete and, but, and still swim quite a bit and those types of things, but having some form of activity and then um, you know, balancing work in there is really uh, what allows you to be most successful. I don't want to get you in trouble here because it sounds like this has always been a challenge for so many finance leaders, including yourself, as you suggest. But at the same time, is there something that you did from a practical point of view at some point in time to create that balance or try to keep it in place at a time when it was very difficult to do that? Did you make a commitment to yourself or your your family or your professional team um, to, to, to make it happen? Yeah, I think it's just being conscious of it. I mean, there's no doubt in my career many, many times over the last 25 years that I've uh, gotten too focused on work, too focused on something else, and it's just being conscious of that, I think, and having people around you, again, family and friends or others that can point that out to you and, and say to you, listen, Brian, you seem like you're working 80 to 90 hour work weeks the last month or so, you know, when is that going to change or when are you going to take some vacation or when are you going to readjust and get back to the gym, which we all, those of us that might go to the gym, uh, you always fall off the wagon sometimes. So I think it's just being very mindful and conscious of that and making the pivots when you need to. I have one other uh, uh, chapter I want to touch on with you, Brian, which uh, before we get to our, our final question, oh, and I do have to ask you for a book. Uh, but I hope you don't mind me touching on this because um, I think it's interesting if you happen to be there at the place in time. Uh, and, uh, and, again, you had mentioned a, a big uh, accounting house that you were part of. I think it was Arthur Anderson. And were you there for the end chapter at Arthur Anderson? Yes, I was, um, fortunately or unfortunately. I, I learned a lot through that. It wasn't a lot of fun, as you can imagine. It was a great firm with – I don't know how many employees I had at the time, but uh, I mean, if I was there until I think it was the summer of 2001, although it might be off a year or two, uh, but I was in the Phoenix office and at our peak, we I think had over a thousand employees, and uh, I was one of the last probably 20 or so to leave, uh, effectively close the Phoenix office, but it was a great culture. It was a great environment. I really, as I mentioned earlier in the, in the podcast, Jack, I really enjoyed my time there. For those listeners who may not have been part of the workforce at that place in time, Anderson uh, was uh, a firm that was established in the early part of the last century. Its founder was uh, largely uh, credited with helping establish the accounting profession. Uh, This institution, this company, this uh, partnership was nearly uh, 100 years old. Just the speed with which the collapse happened caught so many by surprise and so many had to learn how to land on their feet again, which was an invaluable lesson that many uh, many leaders have uh, shared with us. Uh, at the same time, not an easy time. No, no, it wasn't. And I had some extenuating circumstances going on, like a lot of other people did, that just made it that much even more challenging in some ways. But I, I think, listen, at the, at the end of the day, uh, as you said, I, I did was able to find that. I will tell you, going through a, you know an experience like that, and I was relatively young. I was in my late 20s. You know, you got to see how people and colleagues of yours and friends of yours you'd worked with many hours and for many, many years, you know, treated each other. And, you know, I was very mindful at the time of taking some of those experiences very positively and also making mental notes of things that people did that I thought was pretty terrible uh, to others, not necessarily to me. Uh, But, you know, it all worked out. It was a hard transition from public accounting uh, into industry the way it is for many people even today. Uh, But after a few months, it all worked out. And uh, obviously, I'm super happy uh, where I'm at today. Well, thank you. uh, Thank you for sharing that. I know I kind of put you on the spot there with that one. Okay. Well, uh, is there a book you'd recommend uh, to aspiring finance leaders? It doesn't have to be a finance book. 
Pat Bryan, um, but uh, it's a book you'd like to share. Anything come to mind? Yeah, so there's obviously there's lots of great books out there. I think for finance people, I, I tell, uh, talk to a, an old investor recommended a book that I read many years ago, and I thought it was, it's a very easy read. It's called The Outsiders by uh, William Thorndike, and it basically profiles, if I recall, it was the, the best eight, I think it was the eight, it might be ten, I don't remember exactly, but basically the top CEOs of the 20th century. If you define the CEO's job as, as value creation, like how to effectively increase the enterprise value of their businesses, and it, it's a pretty, it's a very interesting, very easy read, and it profiles some names that you might recommend, that you might uh, um, uh, recognize, but actually several names I guarantee you, you will not recognize. Uh, and it talks about the qualities and the personalities of those CEOs and what's common about them and what isn't common about them. But they effectively are the ones that created the most uh, shareholder value over the course of the 20th century, and uh, it's well worth the read. So certainly any upcoming finance professional, uh, or not even just upcoming, but any finance professional, I think it's just a terrific book. Okay, we're up to our final question where I get to ask you to look forward finally. Over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? Yeah, I mean, there's several uh, that are related, obviously, to internally or Cornerstone. But, you know, I'd say one is continuing to grow, develop, and hire all the right finance talent, finance and accounting talent. Uh, as I mentioned earlier in the broadcast, we recently opened an office in Salt Lake City and have several finance openings there, and we're super excited to see that that office grow dramatically. So that's kind of one uh, very people and team focus. The other one is just helping our business continue to scale our architecture and our internal processes. You know, we have a desire to be much bigger than we are today. And we need to make sure we do that in a smart way so we can scale the right way. And then the last couple are really just all about growth, right? What, are, what is going to enable Cornerstone to continue to grow at our size and scale and continue that momentum? A big part of that is our content business, which we talked a little bit about today. And then the other part of it is balancing all those growth characteristics and the right investments for that, but also driving the right bottom line result to create shareholder value with, with cash flow growth and cash flow generation. So I'd say those are my primary kind of priorities or goals over the course of the next uh, you know, 12 to 18 months. Brian Schwartz, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thank you, Jack. Have a good one. Hello, listeners. Do us a favor, be certain to subscribe to CFO Thought Leader on Apple Podcasts, or if you're an Android user, check us out on Spotify or Google Play. If you like the show, please recommend it to a friend. Oh, and by the way, the CFO Yearbook 2021 Print Edition debuts on Amazon this quarter, featuring 100 profiles of finance leaders from our 2020 season. Would you like to learn more about our CFO guests? Order the CFO Yearbook 2021. Thank you for supporting our efforts to bring you career journeys of CFOs driving change. We'll be back with another episode very soon. Thank you for listening.